0: Good morning Orangewood, at our staff meeting last week, Mark Nix delivered our preaching jerseys to Joe and I. So because I like illustrations, my shirt's going to be one eventually. We're called to put on the righteousness of Christ, correct? We're called to take off the old and put on the new. And I know this shirt's really loud. And I hope it doesn't distract you from God's message, from his word this morning. But we are called, every single one of us in this room, we are called to be fruitful. And this shirt in some way convicts me of my lack of fruitfulness for the sake of the kingdom. Yes, it's easy to put on a loud shirt with a bunch of fruit on it. But it's another thing, isn't it, altogether, to humbly, dependently follow my Lord and Savior Jesus into a lifestyle of bearing fruit, of being a fisher of men. And that's where we're going this morning. Pray with me. Father God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank, the, thank you that you are the ultimate truth and reality, whether we want to believe it or not. Thank you that you are constant, unchanging, beautiful, perfectly righteous, just, merciful, gracious. Father, thank you that you love your church. And thank you that we get to be your church. So, Father, by your Spirit, blow through this room. Blow blow through our hearts. Blow through my heart, Father, even as I uh, am tasked with the job of preaching from your word this morning. Just have your way with us. Invigorate us. Revive us. Equip us. Be pleased. To use us, give us courage. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Suppose that you walked out of Publix or Target, or you're leaving your workplace, walking to your car, and a man walks up. He says, Hey, you, come with me. I want you to be my follower. I want you to come now, I want you to drop what you're doing, put your groceries down, leave it, leave those you're with, follow me. I want you to do what I say, I want you to do what I do, I want you to go where I go. I'm gonna be your life teacher. I'm gonna be your coach, I'm gonna be your counselor. And by the way, this will last for about two to three years. And here's my promise to you, I promise to make you into the person you really want to be. Now, what would you say to that person if they had the audacity to say something like that to you? I know what I would think. Can't actually say what I'd probably say. But here's what I have written down, the cleaner version. Who do you think you are? And how foolish do you think I am? that I'm gonna follow you, that I'm gonna obey whatever you say and go where you go. Forget it. In today's passage, we find a man calling other men to do just that, and guess what they do? They leave everything, and they follow him. How can real men follow another man so wholeheartedly? It sounds like alien mind control to me. And sometimes when you read scripture and and you just read one passage, it can come off a little odd. But here's the beauty of scripture. When you dig and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word and to teach you from it, he does. And things that seem awkward come strangely into focus and even apply to your own life and your own experiences. That's what's going to happen this morning, I trust. Let's look at our text. Mark 1, 16 through 34. Hear God's word. It's kind of a long text. Hang with me. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out and I think I missed a verse isn't it good that we have the word right here And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Wow. So this rather lengthy text is divided into... Three sections. We have basically three stories going on here. Four if you count what happened at the door of uh, Peter and Andrew's home after Jesus healed his mother-in-law. But we basically have three stories. And what are they? We have Jesus commanding a pair of brothers to follow him. We have Jesus then commanding a demon, a spirit being who is inhabiting a man. He commands him to come out of that man. And then we have Jesus commanding an illness, if you will. And he didn't command it in the sense that he said anything, but he certainly commanded that illness to be gone in that woman's body. He willed it, if not with words. And we know what happened. The fever left her. So we have three stories. And I was looking and just thinking about these three stories and considering what would, what's consistent, what ties all these stories together in this second half of Mark 1. And it's interesting. I noticed several things. The first thing I noticed was that Jesus is the main player in each one of these little stories, right? And Jesus is exerting a particular, uh, aspect of his character in each one of these three stories, and there is something that is left in each one of these stories. So I'm going to start with that. I just want you to see that Jesus commanded the four men to follow him, and they leave. They leave their catch. They leave their nets. They leave their boats. Uh, James and John even leave their father and the hired servants in order to follow Jesus when? Tomorrow, a week from now, let me get my affairs. No, they leave right then and they follow Jesus. Then in the next story, Jesus is commanding a demon to leave. What is the demon? He has to leave. He leaves the man that he is inhabiting. And then finally, the illness in Peter's mother-in-law, it has to leave as well. So what we see is this consistent pattern that when this person, Jesus, uh, commands, makes a command, particularly to follow him or to obey his command, a leaving follows. You with me? A leaving follows. In each case as well, the authority of Jesus is highlighted. The authority of Jesus is highlighted. It is as if Jesus' very words have supreme authority over all things, all beings, as it were. When he's in the synagogue, What is the people's reaction to his teaching? And what is certainly the people's reaction to his ability to converse with a demon and then command that demon to be quiet and to exit the man? And what does the demon do? The demon obeys. So Jesus is exerting a supreme authority in these stories. He has the ability even to command illnesses to be ceased and healed in people's bodies. It's amazing. Who can tell a demon what to do and the demons obey? Who can order the wind and the waves to cease and the wind and the waves obey? There's only one authority in all the cosmos that has that level of authority. And it's God. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Isn't it interesting that the demons know? The demon knows who Jesus is. He did not have to identify himself. But the demon knows. What title does the demon use to describe Jesus? The Holy One of God. Yes, even the demons know who Jesus is, but they don't trust in him. They don't follow him. So what I want to do is I want to focus the majority of our time on the first part of this story, because it's in this first story where the uh, recipients of his command, they obey him and they follow him. They're not simply cast away. They follow him. So I wanna talk about that. So we're gonna look at this first story, it's only four verses, but we're gonna focus our attention primarily on verse 17 because that's where Christ's command to follow him is mentioned. Follow me and I will make you become Fishers of men, I want you to remember that word, become. So I want you to notice three things about this command. Number one, it's really interesting. We have a covenant making, covenant keeping God through all of Scripture, the Old and the New Testament. And what happens in a covenant? When a covenant is made, there's, there's kind of an agreement. And, uh, and when God makes a covenant, covenant he would make a statement, uh, he would make an, an imperative of his people and then he would tell his people that uh, by obedience to this imperative here's my end of the deal here's what I will do and so there's this covenantal language it's just interesting in this very short command for his disciples to follow him i just want you to see that that he states the the imperative and then he states what he will do if that imperative is believed if you follow me i will make you become fishers of men. This command is also a royal command, right? That's where this supreme authority rests. It rests in the person of God. It rests in the Godhead. It rests in this second person of the Godhead. God in skin, God incarnate. When he speaks, he speaks with supreme authority. Everything he says is absolutely true. Every promise he makes, he will be absolutely faithful in keeping. It's a royal command because the king is making the command of his subjects. And then lastly, the command actually defines for us what a disciple of Jesus is. The very command helps us understand what a disciple is. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. In this command are mandates, the mandates of being a follower of Jesus. So this room is full of many people who profess to be followers of Jesus and many, I'm I'm not the judge, many who are followers of Jesus. Well, we've been given by our Lord and Savior a mandate to follow him. And let's look at how that breaks out. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. I want you to see that a disciple is described in these three phrases. A disciple follows Jesus. Jesus is a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Jesus is their master. He is their Lord. He's not simply their rabbi, their teacher, their counselor. He is their king in whom they live to serve. So a disciple is someone who follows the person of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ, by his spirit, convicts you or asks you to do something, that is a royal ask. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, your heart's desire, at the very least, some part of your heart, your desire is to follow him. And Jesus, if you tell me to go here, I will go. If you tell me to stop, I will stop. Jesus is the one we align ourselves under if we are followers of Christ. Follow me. And I will make you become. A disciple is someone who is being changed. Now a lot of us, some of us like change in this room, some of us hate change in this room. I tend to be one who really likes change. In this command a disciple not only follows Jesus, but a disciple is being changed. Notice who is the one making the change? Now, I like change, but I like being in control of it. Thank you very much. When you follow Christ, Christ is the one, by the power of his spirit, most often through his word, sometimes through the body of Christ, Jesus is leading me. And he is the one that is ultimately changing me Permanently from the inside out. So I'm in a constant state of flux. And so are you if you are in Christ. It doesn't matter if you've been a believer for four decades or four days. You are continually being changed by Christ. He is using every aspect of your circumstance and your life to mold and shape and conform and transform you. So a disciple follows Jesus, a disciple is becoming, and a disciple is given a role, a task. We are called by Jesus to become disciple makers. We are called to become fishers, all of us, of men. And the Greek word for men Anthropoi is men and women. We are called to be fishers of people. We are called as we follow Christ to be used by him to share who he is and how he is and what he's done so that others may be drawn to God and become disciples too. That is every believer's, true believer's primary life job description all of us now where do we do it we do it in all different contexts right all of us have different gifts and abilities all of us have different spheres of influence but you are called in your vocation to be light the light of jesus to those people in your home certainly to your spouse to your children you're called right to make disciples of jesus of your children to encourage your spouse your immediate family, your biological family, you have a responsibility to at least be a witness to them whether they believe or they don't believe. But all of us are called to be disciple makers. I'm gonna go back and stay there. I wanna talk about this uh, passage in a little more detail. These four men follow Jesus. And we learn some things by looking at the rest of scripture. We learn that this is certainly not the first time these four men have met Jesus. In fact, it was about a year earlier that two of them, Andrew we know for sure, and most likely John, the brother of James, were followers of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist first identified Jesus as being that is the lamb, he is the lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world, Guess who was present to hear that? Andrew was. And in the Gospel of John, John has an interesting way of identifying himself in his own gospel. He usually doesn't, and he he calls himself the disciple that truly loved Jesus or something else. There's an expression in John 1, and it says, Andrew was there and another disciple. And they heard John the Baptist say this. So what did they do? They started literally following Jesus. And Jesus turned and said, you know, basically, what are you seeking? Can I help you? And, uh, and, and they, basically, Jesus invited them to come stay with him for the afternoon. And they did. So this is Andrew and likely John staying with Jesus wherever he was staying. They were hanging with him. And during that same day, Andrew goes and gets who? His brother, Simon. And Simon meets Jesus. And Jesus says to Simon, Simon, I'm going to change your name. I'm changing it to Cephas, to Peter, to the rock. (laughs) So that was the first encounter, you know, that we know of. But here's something else that's really interesting. Zebedee is married to a woman called Salome. There are two Salome's in scripture. One's bad. Um, the daughter of Herodias, she had John the Baptist, head cut off. The young girl, the dance that danced for the dance party there. that 's a Salome. There's a Salome who actually is very close to the mother of Jesus. Salome was present at the crucifixion. She was with Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was also one of the ladies that went to the tomb three days later to apply spices to Jesus' body, and they found out that Jesus had resurrected. This is Salome. Some commentators believe that Salome was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which is interesting. That would make James and John first cousins of Jesus. So we don't know for sure, but what I want you to see here is this actually makes the point even more poignantly. How many of you, well, there's a verse in scripture that says a prophet hath no honor in his hometown. And that's why some of us who became Christians older in life, we went back and told our siblings or our parents that we were followers of Jesus. And um, they weren't, perhaps some of your family members are not, but they're having a really hard time with this holier-than-thou sibling that they now have. And they don't really believe that anything deep is transforming in your life because they know every story about you. They know everything you'd ever done. You know, they know all your sins from your childhood. A prophet hath no honor in his hometown. Well, here's what's interesting. These men, James and John, Andrew and Peter, they've known Jesus for a little while at least, maybe for a long while. Jesus, perhaps a first cousin, comes up and commands them to follow him. And what do they do? They follow him. There's something about this Jesus. His whole life, there is something about this Jesus. They follow him. That's amazing. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. These four men saw Jesus for who he was. And when they saw him for who he was, when they recognized him as the Messiah sent from God, God in skin, at least to some degree, they didn't have a full grasp of it, we know that, but they saw him enough to commit their lives to him to shift from one vocation to another, to become fishers of men instead of fishers of fish. And it's to this God-man that they surrender themselves. They surrender themselves, and he leads them to leave their former lifestyle to pursue a new one, a a lifestyle that's based on a life-on-life relationship with the Messiah. Walking with him, living with him, serving with him, working with him, sitting at his feet, life on life, for months and months and months. And during this time, they are learning. They are becoming fishers of men at the feet of the Messiah, Jesus. And why is Jesus doing this? We know now, they didn't, but we know now Jesus is planning on leaving them. And he's even gonna say, it's good that I leave, because then I'll send my spirit But I want you to follow me. And there's this one conversation. It's poignant with Peter. And Peter's like, Jesus has just told him that what kind of death he's going to die. You know? And and what it's going to cost him to be affiliated with Christ so closely. And Peter's curious. And he turns to John. And he says, well, what about John? And Jesus' response basically, um, I'm not, I, didn't, I don't have it memorized, but his basic response is, um, you know, don't worry about John. John might live until I return, but you, Peter, you follow me. And what's interesting is he's commanding Peter to follow him, knowing that in just a few days, Jesus will be out of the picture. Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, after I'm gone, follow me by my spirit. Follow me. I'm going to send my spirit. And by my spirit, Peter, you are to follow me and keep becoming the fisher of men that I've called you to be. So all of his 12 disciples, you know, minus one, Judas, they become fishers of men and they follow Jesus long after he's gone. What's interesting is Andrew and Peter are both crucified. Peter's crucified upside down. Andrew's a missionary to Asia Minor, Turkey, Greece. He's crucified as well. James, James was the first one to be martyred. In 44 AD by Herod, he was stabbed with a sword, killed. These men refused to recant their belief that Jesus was the Messiah, even unto death. They faithfully followed Christ. Even when Jesus was gone, they followed him all the way to the end, never to give up. What were they doing? Sharing the gospel, leading others to saving faith in Jesus, planting churches. They were reproducing themselves. Jesus had come, poured himself into them through a small group community, did life-on-life with each other. They learned together. They cried together. They suffered together. And over that, through that life-on-life experience, disciple-makers were created, who then went out without Jesus, just with his spirit. Yes, they went out probably in pairs. We know Jesus sent them out in pairs during the training period, but they became disciple-makers. And what was their vision? What was their goal? To make more disciple-makers. And we know that this small band of men who, had, who sat at Jesus' feet and did life with him for two to three years, they turned the world upside down. And so we have been called to also be followers of Christ. We've been commanded We've been given the royal command, right, to follow Jesus, to commit our lives to him and then allow him, if you will, to make us become fishers of men and women, disciple makers. That's who we are called to be. So that doesn't come without a cost, does it? Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Ouch. You mean I don't get to live for myself? I don't get to build my own kingdom? I don't get to make my safety, my security, my comfort, my highest goal? Nope. If you're gonna follow me, you have to deny living for yourself. And you have to take up your cross. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus means that a level of suffering and pain will be absolutely part of your Christian experience and a very, very important part of your Christian experience because suffering focuses our attention. When we have a need, and a a need that we're very aware of and it's in the forefront of our thinking and we can't stop thinking about it, if you're a believer, that need is what drives you to your knees to ask God to intervene, to ask God to work, to ask God to take over because you are at the end of yourself. And what I believe, what this command here means is that God calls you to embrace the process of self, self-mortification. Embrace it. Why? Because it's really good that your sin nature is being choked out. It's a very, very good thing. It will result in fruit later. Maybe not right now, but later. Fruit you're not even aware that you're bearing because you don't even know who's watching. So deny yourself, pick up your cross, embrace the die-off that God is working. He's becoming you. He's making you into his disciple maker and suffering is a really, really important part of it. I had a friend this week share with me about his uh, issue with uh, plantar fasciitis. Is that what it's called? I was afraid I was going to mispronounce it. Um, My wife has had that. I have not had that, but I hear it's really painful. He has it in his heel, and it's really painful. And in a conversation with his wife, his wife reminded him and I may not get all the details right, his wife reminded him or, or, or was led by the Spirit to remind him of that verse in Genesis where it says, Satan will strike your heel, but you will crush his head, right? That's that prophecy in Genesis of Jesus. And this friend of mine started praying, and even as he walked, the pain in his one heel would remind him that Satan wants to take him out, take out the church, take out his family, and by golly, he's not going to allow that happen. He's an overcomer. He's a a Christ follower, and he's going to be used by God to crush the enemy's head. So the act of walking, though painful, was this daily, moment by moment, step by step reminder of who he is in Christ and what he's been called to be and do. And It was funny because after he was praying that God would heal his foot too, God gave him some relief. And guess what he wanted? He wanted the pain back. Isn't that weird? It's beautiful though. It's just really ordinary picture, but it's beautiful how God uses illness, you know, issues, health issues, whether they're chronic or momentary. He uses everything. He is the light of the world and he can use everything in your life to reveal to you how loved you are, how important and vital you are. Wow. So that's a beautiful thing. So these men saw Jesus for who he was. They surrendered themselves to him. They served him. They suffered together. But even in the suffering, they found joy. I heard on Z88, Point three, some of you listen, I heard this great little acronym, joy. You want deeper joy? Then prioritize your life around these three things, Jesus, others, yourself. You are third. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me and ask God to enable you to become an equipper, a disciple maker for God's cause. So this thing following Jesus, it can be really disruptive. It can disrupt your family. Some of you have been rejected by family members because you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. It can disrupt your relationship uh, with your possessions. Jesus told the the rich young ruler, what did he tell him? I think that's right here. Oop, go back. He said this, he said, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. So he disrupts the way you think about your stuff. He disrupts that. He disrupts relationships with people, relationships with stuff, relationships sometimes with your vocation. He may even lead you out of one vocation into another so that you can be more useful for his kingdom. So you get the picture. I want to show you, I shared with you last week, or two weeks ago, the slinky, do you remember? And uh, out of Peter's sermon in Acts 3, we saw this pattern of sanctification where the Holy Spirit would show you something in your life that you need to repent of, something you need to let go of, something maybe you're not doing that you need to do, and you realize it, and you need to enter into a period of repentance, agree with God about that thing, and Peter said that when you repent and you get into God's presence, when you're in his presence, he then replenishes you. He then restores you and then puts you back in ministry as a renewed person. And I explained with that slinky that that process is something that we do over and over and over again. But the interesting thing, if you are, a, you know, if you're an ant and you're traveling on a slinky ring and you're traveling and you're going around this circle over and over again, you're not only going around in circles, you're moving. You're actually growing, right? So I have uh, another diagram for you this morning and it'll be easy to explain, don't, don't, don't panic. But remember the slinky, we're sanctified through a process, a cycle that moves us. We also mature and become his disciple, disciple makers as we follow him over time. We're called to become fruit bearing of more disciples for Jesus, right? So here's the diagram. Guess what that is? My time is up. I'm trying to get better, y'all. So here's the diagram, and I want you to imagine it as a clock face. And you, we, we're like a second hand moving around that circle. We start out not knowing God. We're dead. And then we're born again, and then we begin to grow, right? We're called to Jesus. We hear the gospel. We respond. Now we are spiritual babes. We're infants. And scripture even talks about drinking spiritual milk when we're young. We're not ready for deep doctrine yet. We're babes, right? And we grow. It's not unlike being a parent. You have a newborn. There's stuff a newborn has to have to survive. We're newborns at first. We grow. And then we become children. We're still pretty self-centered, pretty about ourselves, but we're growing. We're learning some new things maybe about ourselves, about God, about the world, but then we become young adults. Now we are learning we have gifts and abilities. We're learning how to use them to build the kingdom, right? We discover what our spiritual gifts are. We're beginning to exercise them. We're finding niches and places in community and in church to serve, to build the church. And as that continues, we eventually become parents where we are now equipped enough To take on disciples, people who we can sit with, spend time with, give counsel to, share the gospel with, share truth with, and grow them up. Do you see the cycle? So this is the growth cycle of a disciple maker. This is the cycle. And I want you to think about this cycle. There's a more detailed picture of this. Um, And I'm going to show it to you, but I don't want you to freak out. I'm going to Use this picture in another teaching setting. Uh, looks like the Wheel of Fortune. And not Simon, but the Wheel of Fortune. And so here is the, uh, the whole diagram. Um, whoops, I don't think it's there. Okay. Anyway, I gave you a preview. It's, the circle has, the quadrants are divided up. It's easy to understand. But the important thing is for you to know where you are on that diagram. And then you know what your goal is? The goal is for you to move. The goal is to you possibly to leave something so that you're more wholeheartedly committed to Jesus. The goal is for you to grow spiritually. So as you're going around the slinky, you're repenting, you're being replenished, renewed and restored, you're growing, you're becoming more and more the disciple maker God's called you to be, but there's growth to be had. And so what we're gonna be doing here at Orangewood and in our community groups and elsewhere, we're gonna be teaching this growth circle, this cycle, and we're gonna help you discern where you are on that circle so that you know, because if you don't know where you are, you don't know how you need to grow. So we're gonna we're going to be talking about that. You're all gonna be hearing about it. Where are you on the circle? What is my job as a pastor? To equip you to become a disciple maker. And I want to see you in discipling relationships. And I wanna see you become a disciple maker. Who is your Paul and who is your Timothy? Do you have names in mind? Should you? I want to close out with a little mini movie. It's two minutes long. I want you to watch it, and then we'll close in prayer. Pray with me. Father God, whatever it is that I need to leave so that I may be more wholeheartedly a follower of yours, make it so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.